0: Today's episode of the BS podcast is brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor and our favorite app for buying and selling tickets for sports and music. Go to SeatGeek.com/slash/bs to start using SeatGeek, especially with baseball season coming up. Don't forget to download the free SeatGeek app and our promo code BS, and SeatGeek sends you twenty dollars upon your first purchase. Today's episode also brought to you by Simply Safe. There's no better way to protect your home. Simply Safe has no long-term contracts and the best 24-7 protection possible. For just $14.99 a month, visit simplysafebill.com to get my 10% off discount, simplysafebill.com. And we're also brought to you by The Ringer. Subscribe to our new newsletter at theringer.com. Boy, we had a really good newsletter uh, for Wednesday, whatever, March 30th, Wednesday. Really good one. Probably my favorite one so far. Went in a whole bunch of different directions. Check it out. We are heading toward two hundred thousand newsletter subscribers. The ringer. Okay, here we go. Yeah.
1: Clear enough for you? (laughs) All right.
0: Yeah. Well, it's raining frogs. Keith Olbermann is on the BS podcast. How are you?
2: Uh, as surprised as you are how about yourself
0: (laughs) you had to move you're in the process of moving
2: i am in a hotel room with two dogs and about one one thousandth of all of my uh, possessions right now as i had to move yes
0: so you so when you're in a hotel room it's almost like a nightclub you have a capacity of a hundred and if somebody enters the nightclub you have to kick somebody out
2: exactly it's like okay i don't really need both of these jackets, which right. one of them is going into storage. And that's very, I mean, it's sort of healthy. You know where everything is. Yeah. That's for
0: sure. My advice to all the younger collectors out there is just to be careful early, like around 25, really start making your choices wisely because the stuff just adds up and adds up and adds up. And eventually you, you don't know what to do with it. So, yeah. So what have you been up to? Like you, you're sitting out the most incredible political election, I think, of my lifetime. I I mean, I'm sure there was crazier ones before I was born, but um, it just feels odd to not have you prominently involved commentating on all this stuff.
2: Well, a couple of things. I I think I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, Two, I would say that's not, what has happened has not entirely been my own choice. Uh, Mm -hmm. And three, to be fair, as uh, as there's been, I've had kind of a, until recently, I've had kind of a mixed uh, track on this. I've sort of, Enjoyed not having to do anything, particularly as this got sillier and sillier and stupider and stupider as it has. And uh, the my last experience—I don't know if you've ever heard of this place I used to work at, most recently called the ESPN. Mm. But I needed a little time to decompress after that experience as well. I know so that feeling. The, yeah, just a touch. And there's all the welcome to the alumni association. There's a little bit of um. A little bit of of, of, of uh, you know multiple uh, explanations for it, but um, I, I have had I've been in talks with people about going back into political television since I mean this is actually true. Next month will be or May beginning of May will be the second anniversary of the first set of talks, and the 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 television. I just saw a thing online, I think today, asking why with all of this going on politically, like the evening newscasts. Their ratings are not significantly higher. And you know, it was like, well, somebody noticed. And somebody noticed that the cable networks, despite all this craziness, their ratings are up a little bit. But it's not like what happened in 2008. And they're just now getting to sort of 2012 level of enthusiasm. And as much as the boasting is about, look at all the ratings for the Republican debates and everything else, the rest of it, nobody's watching. And there's there's been a sea change relative, obviously, to all of media, but it's hitting news last. And I'm whereas I've been talking to these original kind of mainstream old guard, uh, OG kind of uh, uh, outlets, I don't know if it's the right place to go. And as to the idea of sort of sitting it out, um, there is one thing we can we can be confident about, Bill, which is that this stupidity is not going to suddenly stop. <laughs> we're not going to run out of this. Not when not when Anderson Cooper and Donald Trump are arguing over whether or not Donald Trump is a five-year-old boy. I mean, we're, we're nowhere near the bottom of this yet. I mean, we really aren't. And, and uh, I think the general election will be twice as entertaining, especially after the Republicans try to take the nomination away from Trump um, in Cleveland. So it's going to be... I, I think there's plenty of time... And I, I, do. I'm. I don't think there's anything close. But I, as I, I said on TV last week, I'm gonna, I'm coming out of retirement, so right. I'm going to do it one way or the other. Even if I'm just writing, I'm going to be doing something the rest of the way.
0: I totally get the uh, the philosophy of decompressing and mm-hmm. taking a step back, taking a breath, kind of recovering. That I mean, I think we were both probably in similar places to some degree. Was there a moment during this political process when? All of a sudden, you're like, "Oh my God, I got to get back into this."
2: I think I when I, I mean, it's a personal thing rather than one moment of it. No, it's a combination of both. I uh, I I bought in the Trump Palace in New York in 2007, largely because that was at the height of the market. For real estate in this city and I got priced out of everything else and I was really overpaid and I still couldn't afford anything where I wanted to go or within like 30 blocks of where I wanted to go so my girlfriend at the time and I said let's you know okay maybe we'll look at a Trump building and we went in and it was at that point wonderfully uh, appointed and great views and everything else but I went in there with hesitation But the day that I actually said, I've got to get back into this, and I've got to get out of this house, was when Donald Trump said, boastfully, that if he went out onto Fifth Avenue and shot people, it wouldn't impact his campaign negatively. And there's obviously, in the first statement there, is the idea that he would just give voice to the idea of walking out onto Fifth Avenue and shooting people, which is discouraged here in New York City. But, (laughs) you know on top of that there is this idea that he would just he would view that as part of the political calculus that there's nobody around here who who i care about when this is where you know without this city he would be he would be selling newspapers in in a an outdoor stand outside madison square garden he would not even have one of the indoor locations in penn station uh... and thirdly The other part of this was there was kind of a uh, there was an impunity to it, like I could shoot somebody and it wouldn't it wouldn't get my followers um, to sort of swerve away from this um, semi-fascist freight train that he's driving. And at that point, I said, check, please, and called the real estate person and said, get rid of this. I'm moving and and I have moved and, and I'm trying to move where I can make these opinions known on a regular, perhaps hourly basis somewhere.
0: Right. Um, as you, you know, this is the first time you've been detached from this whole election process in a while. As you're just mm-hmm. watching the different programs and shows and all this stuff, what have you noticed now that you don't have skin in the game and you're not thinking about your own show every day?
2: Well, to be fair, I, I'm, my assessment of it is, is is very skewed because even, you know, I was at... Uh, People think of me as a peripatetic guy who can't hold a job and blah 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 blah. blah. I was on MSNBC from uh, let's see, Dick Ebersall hired me to come back to NBC in October 2002. Yeah, and I was still on the air there as of January 2011. So that's a pretty long stretch, mm. pretty much daily stuff. And I um, I didn't watch a lot of other uh, a lot of other. Cable programming at that point. I just couldn't. I mean, I never. I never thought it was very insightful, for the most part, on that network and on others. And I just was, uh, you know, a little, a little burnt out quickly. And so the, my assessment of what's different now is is hindered by the fact that I didn't really pay that much attention to it in the in the old days. But I will say this: what's missing in the assessment of what's going on on cable news is that uh, there's no Nobody's noticed that that on top of all of the all of the Trump coverage and the you know are we, is the media inventing Trump? Is Trump taking advantage of the media? Whose fault is it? He's killing off huge amounts of time that no longer need anchors or pundits or analysts or anything else. He's providing so much free programming that it's really like it's almost at the stage, as if the NBA provided ESPN and Turner. Uh, a free game every night. And imagine, and with no announcers, by the way, the, the and the players did the announcing themselves. So this is the thing. I don't think people, people realize <laughs> it. You headed there. Well, all right, yeah. Uh, sometimes, trust me, I, I know you know this, sometimes if you tune in, you feel like that's already happening.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, where there are no announcers, but we'll just let that pass so we don't get in any more trouble than we're yeah. already in. good idea. But I, here, what I'm saying is, if Trump gets up there and, and for 45 minutes drums up people into you know walking out with a with an ineffable
1: uh,
2: unspeakable unclear in their own minds hatred of something or somebody and they just they just cover this for 45 minutes well you just killed 45 minutes i mean you you don't need an anchor um, you don't need a camera in the studio you don't need the entire i mean production costs for say a show like mine used to be I, I'm, it, it varied, but it, depending on how much you, you you paid the meat puppet, you it might be, you know, ten million dollars or more a year for the whole show. Right. And, Ooh, your, and do, your
0: dogs are fired up, by the way.
2: Yeah, they're 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 not they're not fans of Trump either. <laughs> these are these are. I have two Maltese, and I know yeah. they sound like in the background they sound like I have two horses in the hotel room with me.
0: You should say bulls.
2: They yeah, sound. They
0: sound. They sound fierce.
2: Yeah. They, they. The one is particularly outstanding because she will bark at anything, <laughs> and then when whatever it is she's barking at returns her interest, she immediately comes back and hides behind me. Right. Which is, I don't know. So that's that's de- a little dog thing. That's the definite. Well, yeah, but I have another one who's just like the three quarters of a pound bigger who doesn't do that. So it's it's. Mm. Uh, endlessly entertaining, which I is not I can't say that for Trump and I can't say that for cable news, but I but to back to the point now that the dogs have, have yeah. checked out of the barking business, I, I mean it, it's 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 free programming and they are getting decent ratings with it, although um, it's like years ago I, I I got stuck covering Clinton Lewinsky that story every night. We did that show 228 nights in a row, or 228 shows in a row.
0: You got fed up with it eventually, right? Well, but understand what the
2: context of it was. We had started this, they had hired me, literally, I went in to interview with a guy named Andy Lack, who was running NBC News then and has been brought back to run it now. And I went in to talk to him about a -a once-a-month spot for Nightline, uh, for uh, Dateline, a sports spot, because I was going to have a new job in which I had, like, Fridays off or something like that. And I would offered ESPN that day for $50,000, and they turned it down. I said, I'll come up on Sundays and do SportsCenter with Dan. They went, no, we can't <laughs> control you. We don't want you here. That was literally the quote. Uh, does that sound familiar to you at all, by the
0: yeah. way? Uh, it rings a bell.
2: Just a vague, yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the, number, the number varies from decade to decade and, and you know, individual to individual and how much they need to repress stardom and popularity. But that's that's the, the, the basic premise remains unchanged from generation to generation, and probably will be thus in the year 3,000. I'm going to see this guy, and 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 he and at the end of this thing, he says, you want to do a, uh, a the cable, our, our cable news network needs an 8 o'clock host, and we want to do a news magazine kind of show live every night. and We'd also like you to host the World Series and work on the Super Bowl. And I heard Charlie Brown's teacher's voice. I heard, wah,
1: wah, 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 wah,
2: wah Super Bowl World Series. And I said, yes. So the next thing I know, I'm on the air from Secocks, New Jersey, doing an hour of news every night. And we started with crap like our lead story was once the Farmer's Almanac came out. That was our lead story. And we had a guest. We had the editor to talk about. So you're saying that uh, 75 days from now it's going to rain in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. And and then one day I'm out doing a story. Um, it's the Super Bowl week and I'm out interviewing John Lithgow on the set of Third Rock from the Sun and the Clinton Lewinsky story breaks and suddenly I'm being I'm talking in a two-way with Tim Russert in Washington about how the president might have to resign and our audience went from a hundred thousand one night to a million and a half the next so needless to say NBC was really interested in maintaining this kind of you know result and um, I understand where MSNBC and Fox and CNN which have all had ratings problems in the last 5 years just can't resist this opportunity because you know they have got um, they've got not only better ratings but free. I mean they don't have to they don't have to spend any money beyond the satellite costs and the camera crew that's there and maybe one $150,000 a year reporter and it's just it's a windfall for them in a time uh, it,
1: it,
2: what's happening to news on television is akin to what happened to newspapers beginning 30 years ago, but obviously it accelerated because of the internet. So the, this is, this is manna from heaven when it hasn't rained in 10 years.
0: What do you think is the most interesting show right now? On, on cable news? Just anywhere for, for politics. Cause like, you know, another yeah. guy who's not here anymore, who, Stewart, yeah. yeah, I mean, that would have been, uh, this kind of would have been perfect for him. Oliver's, Oliver's done a good job, but he's only on once a week and he doesn't always do politics, but.
2: Yeah. And, and my, uh, my old college, uh, nearly had a fist fight with him. We went to college together, but we're never in the same class mate, Bill Maher once a week. Yes. It's, it's a problem. Um, there isn't something on a consistent basis. I, I, I don't watch any of it on a regular basis. Um,
0: the, do you think? Do you think it's even possible anymore? Because it seems like it's just so polarized now. Everyone's on one side or the other. Is there any way to even, to even do a balanced kind of yeah, thing? I don't even know I, if I it's possible.
2: No, I, I, you know, you, you look at periods in American history in which you could see people trying to make compromises and and stick to the American way, and you you know uh, the compromise of eighteen fifty, which was supposed to settle. Settle the slavery issue by saying, okay, south of here, it's okay, and north of here, it's not okay. That didn't work. I mean, the Civil War itself was not a fail- failure to compromise. All sorts of moments in history in which political parties disappeared. I mean, you know, the Whig Party finished second in the 1852 presidential election. And they didn't have a candidate running by the 1860. Uh, uh, presidential election. We've had, you know, these moments of 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 hoped for resolution and nothing really resolves them other than some sort of massive I don't want to say tragedy or disaster, but big events of history tend to make these decisions. But they're not they're not decided by compromise nor would be this political divide. This is not going to be resolved, I don't think by by even people who to my mind somewhat deleteriously to the people the interest of the people who supported him to some degree i don't think barack obama pressed most of the points he could have as president from a liberal point of view or a democratic point of view i think he tried to he tried to reach out for compromise and got and got nowhere um, as the the senate refusing to accept a nominee for the supreme court for the last year of his presidency indicates. But, you know, I just, I mean, the Civil War was needed to resolve slavery because we couldn't figure out a way otherwise. And the Great Depression solved a lot of the uh, economic uh, lunacy of the 1920s and, and even dating back to the days of the robber barons in the late 19th century. And the Second World War solved a lot of dis. I mean, people, you know, 1940, there was a move to make Charles Lindbergh, the great aviator, um, the Republican nominee, and his campaign was, his campaign promise was, under no circumstances will we get involved in any kind of European war, and we will not admit refugees from Europe. That was where he was going with that. And then the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and took care of that option. But we've always I mean, you, you, you talk about crazy elections. It, this country is we claim to be experts on compromise uh, the, the 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 declaration of independence and the constitution are full of compromises unfortunately one of them kept slavery intact which obviously led to the civil war 75 odd years later but we we're really not that good at compromise we're really not that good at it and i don't i don't see any great Soothing balance. Whether we're talking about something as stupid as cable news on TV, on cable news, or the society as a whole, we have we have two or more groups of people in this country, and you can argue who's right, you can argue who's wrong, and you can argue how big each group is. But there are two groups that kind of we all live in the same space, but we don't interact. We don't accept any almost any facts between us. Uh, except there's only one fact that is agreed upon, which is that the media is against us. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> For,
2: you know, you're a Republican, the media is against us, and those mainstream bastards at, at uh, CNN and MSNBC and ABC, they're all against us, and if you're a liberal, it's those mainstream bastards at Fox News are against us. That's the only thing we agree on, and you know, I think there is general agreement that Donald Trump has one of the more magnificent comb in human history. But other than that, we have no, there's no, If I've said this for years, and it started in 98, doing that Clinton Lewinsky thing. If, thank goodness, that we do not have pure zones in which there are all the red states in one area and all the blue states in the other, I think we'd have been shooting by now, because this is the intolerance of either either side, and I don't, you know, absolve myself from having contributed to this. Um, even if it was defensive on my part, I still contributed to it. But we we don't have uh, we don't have a middle way at this point. Nothing that has been tried has been effective, and and clearly the, the Republican nominating process suggests that there's a whatever percentage or conservatives, ultra conservatives, anti-establishment, whatever you want to say on the conservative side of things. they they have no interest in compromising with the current situation. They they want to overthrow it and, you know, if that means sort of ending democracy here, so be it.
0: I wonder, I mean, I know it's an especially crazy year, but I, I keep thinking about how has social media changed this stuff over the last eight years? Because Unbelievable. One, one thing that I mean, everyone mentions the obvious reasons why it's changed it. But one thing that that I think people tend to follow either on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you follow people that you get along with. You follow exactly. friends. You follow people that think like you for the most part. Um, and I wonder if that reinforces these two sides where it's like, it, you know, say 10 years ago, I'm maybe I'm reading um, publications or websites that kind of lean toward where I am. And maybe at my family Thanksgiving dinner table, I'm going to disagree with a couple of people, but most of the friends in my life are going to believe most of what I believe. Now it's like your internet life, everybody's kind of where you are mentally with things. And I wonder if that splits the sides even more.
2: Unquestionably. Um, I was, you know, let's, let's get this out of the way. Great minds think alike. I was looking at Twitter two hours ago, thinking exactly that. Mm. Just reading who it was and and what the what what the topics were being discussed, and I was thinking, yeah, you know, I don't follow Ann Coulter, do I? No, and I don't, you know, and you have to. I, I don't. I, I to the degree of obviously, if you read the Donald Trump's Twitter feed, you get the you get so many answers about him. I cannot bring myself to follow him, and. Because we've turned it into a competition, uh, Obama said the other day, you know, the historians in the future will not look back on how many retweets a particular political note got, but they'll be looking at the full historian's value of what that. I'm thinking. What about American society suggests to you that that's remotely true? Mm. I mean, Donald, Donald Trump, I don't think he has actually said how many Twitter followers he has. But it will come up before he's done. Whatever happens, he will give you, and he will be within, uh, you know, what I have, five, six, seven million, whatever he's got. He'll He'll be able to recite it to within, I'd say, 20 plus or minus. The over-under is 20. On how many Twitter followers he says he has, as opposed to how, he, how many he really has. But because it's competitive, I cannot add. In my, I cannot physically push that button and make it one more.
0: Right. You and, just have to bookmark him and then read it yeah. without him getting the follow.
2: Yeah, but I mean, this is this is the this is how much it's become uh, a contest and not just a and not just a contest in the in the traditional american political sense of it but a contest in terms of well i have more likes and i have more followers and i have more retweets i do it if i say something particularly obnoxious about trump i go and check and see how many times it's been retweeted i do it and i'm sitting there going why are you doing this right. have a little self confidence that we that, that that you're fine but you know back to your back to your point it's absolutely accelerated this process by which it is it is almost as if and it certainly is proceeding exponentially faster than it than it did five years ago five hours ago five minutes ago it is moving towards the point where everybody that you really don't agree with is a ghost and we all occupy the same space but you only see the people with whom you are at least in fifty-one percent agreement with, yeah, you know. And I mean, uh, when Dan and I wrote that Sports Center book, which is now pushing twenty years ago, the blurbs on the back of the book included one from George Will, and George Will, I think, would take a swing at me if I saw him in person <laughs> today. You know, so it just and it's it, uh, again, I'm not, I'm not sitting there going, look what these people did to my America. I'm part of this too, and I made money off doing this. But, but your point to it, I don't know how many people have sat and thought about this besides you, me, and I, and I hope a, a thousand other people have thought about the impact of this, but it's absolutely true, and it's, and it's, it's terribly dangerous, and the, the only comfort in it, and again, I, I, I don't want to encourage the thought that there's going to be some sort of trauma that, that shakes us out of this, but I've just read in a book by a man named Paleo, about the caning, uh, a famous event in American pre Civil War history. I don't know if you, it's about Senator Charles Sumner of the tunnel of the same name from Massachusetts, who was a strident uh, anti slavery uh, speaker. And he was, I don't know what you would call him in terms of today's politics. I don't think there's anybody as vivid as a speaker nor as personal as a speaker. And he went after congressmen from the South and insulted them on the floor of the Senate. And I mean, in a day in which, um, you know, if you if you criticized some congressman's wife's hat, he might challenge you to a duel. Right. Uh, He criticized two related family members who were in the House. One was in the House. and The other was the governor somewhere. And uh, Preston Brooks, I think was his name, congressman from somewhere in the South went onto the floor of the Senate. He was one of the offended uh, relatives of this, uh, of this guy that Senator Sumner had criticized. And he took his cane, and he beat Senator Sumner nearly to death at his desk on the floor of the Senate. The North uh, reacted to this. The anti-slavery group reacted to this like it was an atomic weapon being dropped. The people of the South sent Congressman Brooks a supply of new canes. So in history, we have been here before. Yeah. And I just hope it's not something civil war-like that resolves this because uh, maybe, maybe, maybe this generation's better than all the ones before, but it really scares the hell out of me. And I'm just, I'm glad, as odd a picture as it presents, I'm glad that there are pockets of conservatives and liberals scattered throughout the country rather than all in one place.
0: Well, I, I can't imagine, um, a better place for the Republican convention to happen than Cleveland, <laughs> which I don't know if people have made this point, but seriously, the the most tortured sports city in America we have, and now they have this convention of all the conventions they could have had.
2: Oh boy. I mean, you know, t- just the untold stories of Cleveland, never mind, never mind, LeBron and the Cavaliers and everything else. And the right I, I i think you know well, I, there's two things i think of in cleveland i think of uh and not just the indians not winning since 1948 i think of two things the nhl before it used to expand every hour and a half the national hockey league was it was going to put a team when there were only six of them Was going to put a team in cleveland in the 50s and the norris family which owned the Blackhawks and the Red Wings and Madison Square Garden and therefore controlled 50% of the league said, oh, we're not expanding. Why would we expand? That means we won't control 50% of the league. Right. And so the Cleveland never got its team. Then They got a team briefly in the 70s for a year and a half. The Barons. They, the Barons before they merged with the North Stars. The other Cleveland story, and you'll remember this or know of it, I was watching it, was a, the Royals used to play a couple of games in Cleveland every year, the Cincinnati Royals. And with Bob Cousy as the coach, in 1969, early in the 69-70 season, they were beating the Knicks by, what was it, six points with ten seconds left? Oh, is this Nothing. when he put himself in? No, well, he had played in that game. Yes. Yeah. I don't know that he was on the court for that this sequence, but the Knicks won the game trailing by. In my memory, they were down 20 with 15 seconds left and right. won by two. But I think it's the, the reality to it, I don't know, I have it in front of me, the reality to it um, was almost that bad. And I just think of that. When you think of Cleveland sports history, I, I think of that and, and you know, um, and the cheap beer night and the, and the folding metal chairs oh, and everything God. else. And those folding metal chairs. You know those could be useful at the uh, at the Cleveland Convention. I'm thinking that we might see a lot of that.
0: you know, Cleveland did dodge one bullet. Bill Cosby almost bought the Browns. <laughs> oh, God. so they have that at least. Oh. <laughs> Before we talk baseball with Keith, if you're just getting started or you're already building a growing business Mailchimp, Makes it easy to connect with your customers and sell more stuff. It's totally free to get started, no expiring trial, no credit card required. More sophisticated marketers can go with MailChimp Pro, the only email platform with multivariate testing. You can create and test up to eight different email campaigns with an intuitive, easy to use interface. Hey, you know who's using MailChimp right now? Me! We used MailChimp to launch our new newsletter for the Ringer. Thanks to MailChimp, we're over 175,000 subscriptions. And our first three weeks of newsletters have gone swimmingly. Very, very happy with MailChimp. Uh, When we start sending you emails about our 20% off BSPN t-shirts, it's going to be with MailChimp. Just kidding. We're not doing that. At least not yet. But thanks to MailChimp for helping me and everyone at The Ringer build our audience before our website launches. It's incredibly easy to use. Check them out. MailChimp.com. And I also wanted to mention, did you know Ken Burns? Directed a new two-part, four-hour film about the life and times of Jackie Robinson for PBS? Oh, it's happening. The movie tells the story of an American icon whose lifelong battle for first-class citizenship for all African-Americans transcends even his remarkable athletic achievements. When Jackie broke the color line in baseball in 1947, here's what was going on. Martin Luther King was a junior at Morehouse College. President Truman had not integrated the military. The Supreme Court had not ruled on Brown versus Board of Education, and Rosa Parks had not refused to give up her seat on a bus. The movie features extensive interviews with Robinson's widow Rachel, whose recollections and personal archive of photographs open a window into Jackie's private life that we have not really seen. The man was a civil rights pioneer and a fierce integrationist. After baseball, a widely read newspaper columnist, divisive political activist, a tireless advocate for civil rights. Uh, you want to watch this film. Directed by Ken Burns, Sarah Burns, and David McMahon. It's called Jackie Robinson. It is a two-night event premiering on PBS on Monday, April 11th. And now back to Keith Olbermann. Let's talk about baseball for a second. Sure. You love baseball. You what? I, I would say you're in the front battalion of baseball fans. Oh, your dogs got excited again because we switched to yeah, baseball. Yeah,
2: some you know. No, I'm, on 12th, I'm on the twelfth. I'm on the twelfth floor. The dogs heard somebody moving on the thirty-first floor. Yeah, they have great hearing.
0: So ba- no, yeah. baseball's in a in a very strange and I guess good situation, but it's turned into a local sport for yeah, the most entirely, part. Entirely, and, and it's doing better than ever from a business standpoint. But yet, I'm a Red Sox fan, and I could care less what's happening in the NL Central, and I would never watch a game that wasn't the Red Sox unless it was the playoffs. Yep. And we've gradually drifted toward this point. Is it a good thing or a bad thing, or is it anything?
2: It can't be a good thing long term. And, and to, uh, to the owner's credit, um, I've been saying that it can't be a good thing long term. It's at least the 90s, and so far they keep making more money every year. It's amazing, less. but you know, the, the we know this firsthand. Every year, the the television's dependence on live programming, um, and the price, therefore, of live programming in terms of sporting events doubles, or it feels like it doubles, and the sport you would never put on ESPN or Fox Sports One or you know NBCSN or whatever the sport you would never put on and would never bid for and if you did bid for it there wouldn't be any competition for it is suddenly worth uh 200 million dollars a year
0: because when, you're talking about a thousand hours of programming if you include the spring training the pre-game but, the post-game but,
2: but it's stuff that 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 is the only it's the only t- television product that is still considered largely a television product. Obviously, you can get baseball games through MLBs, packages, and such, and, and that with every other sport. But it's in, in terms of what's on a TV sports network, it's the only thing people are compelled to watch and will not watch or rarely watch on DVR. So its value continues to shoot upwards, while the value of shows featuring, say, people like, oh, you and me, continues yeah. to drop. And, and economically, it makes ultimately no sense to have anybody but interns in studio shows on the major sports networks. That's where it's going. But what baseball is managing to do is to devalue the national package. And it, it, whereas so far it's continued to grow a little bit every time it's been up for bids, you know, Fox is not going to pay what they paid previously for a package of, of national games that are now shown almost exclusively on cable. It yeah. doesn't make any sense. And it's it, the price relative to the NBA or relative to the NFL uh, has been plummeting for only 60 years. I, I, my first boss in television, I got hired by CNN. In CNN's second year of operation, when the guy came and tried to hire me for headline news as one of the sportscasters, he wanted, moving, wanted me to move to Atlanta. I was working in radio for Charlie Steiner. And I had a nice little gig going in Times Square, and the guy goes, we're trying to hire five sportscasters for a total of $95,000 a year. I mean, this is how long ago this was. And his name was, it's $95,000 a year total. And I said, how are the other four guys going to live on 25000 Because I'm not moving to Atlanta for less than seventy. <laughs> and And this guy was named Bill McPhail, brother of Lee McPhail, the former president of the American League, son of Larry McPhail, who introduced night baseball and broadcasting and um, obsessive alcoholism to the front offices of Major League Baseball. And Bill and his good buddy Pete Rosell devised this system in the 50s by which they married the local broadcast of an NFL game to a network broadcast, a national broadcast, the situation we still have today. And by doing that, they created something that, that never really existed, in, uh, with the exception of the New York Yankees, the Chicago Cubs, the Boston Red Sox, maybe the St. Louis Cardinals, and then you're out. They created in the NFL countless, or maybe now 100% of the teams have fans, large, measurable fan bases in cities that they may not be playing in as a visitor for the next five years. Right. And and this is the reverse of baseball. It used to be, and I was talking about this with, um, I, I just happened to see this, Somebody sent it to me or something. It was a, a, a thing I did with Letterman years ago, and he asked, what happened to the All-Star game in baseball? The All-Star game used to be the time when you would see all the stars in the other league or on the teams that didn't get a lot of national exposure, and you'd see them on TV once a year, and you had to watch the All-Star it was a, game.
0: The All-Star game was like a huge part of my childhood. It was amazing.
2: I used to, I used to keep score yeah. on a giant score sheet of my own making for the All-Star game. Because it was on top of, you know, this idea that you didn't, you know, if you were in, in, in Boston, you're seeing the National Leaguers almost the only time you're going to see them except for the playoffs in the World Series.
0: Well, and also really meant something to have one of your guys in the All-Star game.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And, and facing you know if if Fritz Peterson of the Yankees and I don't think this actually happened but he had to face somebody famous from the National League I'm thinking I saw Fritz Peterson pitch to Roberto Clemente and yeah. that was like are you seeing this did you see that pop up that foul pop up behind third base right and that would be that would be on the back page of the New York newspapers the next day but now first off you've erased the the thing that baseball had uniquely in American sports was this two league concept which they fell into because there used to be two rival businesses, and they never really agreed to do anything except try to kill each other. They stopped doing that about 1903, and then afterwards, for 75 years, there was still no cooperation, or nearly no cooperation between the two of them. They've erased the idea of the leagues with interleague play, which interleague play had its value and created some novelty, and it created some money for them instantaneously, and it created some new, you know, some new excitement in some respects, but it to- totally devalued the All-Star game. What does the American League mean to a 20-year-old baseball fan? What does the National League mean? And in the World Series, we had this a couple of years ago where the two World Series teams had met in the next-to-last series of the regular season. The, right. the, the joy of the World Series was you could get excited about the Philadelphia Phillies and the Kansas City Royals, because they'd, other than in spring training, never stepped on the same field together. There was something instantly historic about that, and that's gone. So now you've gotten in a position where, with the exception of us old diehards, who's are you going to watch the World Series if your team is not in it? You, you might, um, but probably not. Quick and,
0: interruption on this. Yeah. When Pedro struck out five of the first six in 99. Yep. That was a moment, you know, and it, and part of the moment was that this was the only time he was going to pitch against these big guys that we, at the time, we all kind of thought the balls were juiced. Maybe we were in denial, right. but he was going against Sosa, McGuire and Bagwell and, and just guys that he was never going to go against. And he took them all down and it was awesome. And that's like the last all-star game moment other than when they had to stop the game, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know that I feel like that was the last relevant baseball moment. But it's partly because of what you're saying is that well, the interleague I, play has now devalued it, those moments.
2: I'll tell you an extra story to that, which was I was that, that was that game was on Fox, and that was the first year I was working for Fox, and I was in the dugout, and I was in the National League dugout, and those guys came back going, "Nope, nobody's going to hit him tonight," right. and the startling thing about it was. And it was the first, one of the first signs I had that there was real trouble. We were in Fenway Park, and I had worked a year in Boston, and I knew that, that you know Fenway Park has this certain mythology, and the Red Sox fans have a certain aura nationally that isn't, I mean, it's not. it wasn't true every night. There were plenty of good seats available through most of the 1984 season. If yes. you wanted to go see the Red Sox, you could pick them up. Don't even worry about it. How much cash have you got? We'll give you these two seats down front. Yeah. It was possible to do that. But uh, it was still startling to sit in that dugout and watch him just, you know, ball leave his hand and disappear visually from the dugout and hear the National League players go, thank God he's out of our league and all the rest of that. Yeah. And hear almost nothing in the ballpark. I mean, my dogs are louder than the ballpark was for the most part. And finally, this this is during or right after that run of strikeouts, Sean Casey came over to me and said, hey, what's that noise? And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, listen real close. And you heard a voice. And it was it was a field of dreams moment because we're in Fenway Park, and it's a distant voice. And, and I didn't hear it at first, and then Casey pointed it out. And I went, wait a minute, I do hear it. He goes, I'm getting scared. What's this voice? And we identified it as noise coming from the right field corner behind the pesky pole at Fenway Park. And what it turned out to be was that was where they were holding the mid-game media news conferences for pitchers who had just left the game for oh, players, and it was so quiet in Fenway Park in the moments after Pedro Martinez struck out the five guys in a row that you could hear the it, just the in that room PA system echoing across the All Star Game, yeah. and I thought this when Ted Williams drove off the field that night, something went with him about certainly about the All Star Game and in some senses about baseball. And I don't know that it's ever been the same since
0: it did it, feel like in the playoffs last year and and maybe social media had a little bit to do with this, but it, you know, now there's like this five week run when people are in on baseball, the ratings were pretty good. It seemed mm-hmm. relevant. The people enjoyed the, uh, you know, that the Mets kind of took it close. And then, you know, the Halloween night, everything fell apart and, they um, gave
2: the World Series away, thanks to Daniel Murphy and Joanna yeah. Cespedes. Yes, yes.
0: You know, I was, I was, yeah. uh, you know, I I live in a big trick or treat neighborhood, and I was kind of manning the door and running back to the TV and going back and forth, and I I had handled the door, came back, and I could tell from the reactions that they were showing in the fans <laughs> that something like truly horrible had happened. My Red Sox DNA kicked in. I was like, yeah. oh no. Oh God! Something happened. I rewound it two minutes, and there it was. But man, ba- baseball is the only sport where that happens.
2: Yeah, well, be- because baseball is, as you know, it's it's ten to thirty seconds of as intense excitement and physical activity as in any sport, followed by a period to digest every play. Yeah, and 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 sometimes things move so fast that you get three or four of them in a row. Which will then lead to a pitching change or whatever, and you see this not just um, not just a, a, the shock, but but an excess and overload of information in the fan that has just been, you know, just had his heart punctured by Daniel Murphy. Um, if you look at the World Series film, I'm not a, a Met fan per se, but but of the two teams here, I'd be closer to being a Met fan, and I don't know how many people I know with the Mets who I consider friends. So I, I invited a friend of mine who used to produce Craig Ferguson's show. who came in from L.A. and is a diehard Met fan. And we went to all three games in New York. And in the World Series video, on the, the game-time play in the ninth inning <laughs> of the fifth game, you can see us. Look for me in a bright orange fleece under a black Matt Harvey jacket. <laughs> and it's me and my white hair is sticking up. You can see me just to the left of the plate. And the two of us are like, my friend is giving the out call as Hosmer sides in safely, but just watch us in, in the occasional shots we're in in the last inning of that of that game, and you will see us collapse like Wade Boggs at Shea Stadium. <laughs> I mean, it's I, when I saw this for the first time, I said, "I, I don't remember doing any of that. It was like an out of body experience." And I wasn't a totally invested Met fan, although my friend Mike was, yeah. and he was. We basically had to pour him into the car, but you know. Um that you're right, there is there's a pickup for the playoffs. The playoffs once again have now become more interesting than the World Series, which is a disaster unless that's fixed somehow. Uh, I mean I don't I, I don't know. I've gone through a, a million ways. I, I flash back to my own childhood. How did you know how did you know the World Series was important? I knew the World Series was important because when I went in when my dad said I have tickets uh, for the game Wednesday, game four against the Orioles, 1969 World Series. Uh, you'll have to get the day off. You'll have to go talk to your homeroom teacher, seventh grade homeroom teacher. And I said to her, uh, uh, Miss Barton, and she'd been there, I think they, she was there and they built the school around her. She'd been there like 800 years. I said, Miss Barton, I, uh, I need to be excused Wednesday. My dad has gotten two tickets to the World Series. And I don't think I'd ever seen her smile. And she said, can you take me with you? And, <laughs> You know, it, it was like, oh, this is important. And the same time, once I wanted to to watch a war, or listen to a World Series game, and I had a transistor radio with me. And I asked the teacher about it. I had the the. Uh, I was like this as a kid as well. And I asked, could I listen to it with my earphone? And the guy goes, I don't know. Only if you give us updates based on outs and hits. So every time there was a play, in the 1968 World Series. I would raise my hand, and Mr. Modelinski the science teacher, would call on me, and I would say, McAuliffe grounded to, fir- to third. And he goes, go, thank you, Keith. Meanwhile, looking again here on the plant, <laughs> the structure of the plant, this is the, this is the you know, yeah. I just, it's it, it, it school stopped. The answer was, it's a long way of saying, school stopped, so you could watch the World Series. It was on during the day, and I know they would never get any of the money that they're getting for the nighttime World Series games, and I talked to Dick Ebersaw about this. He said I suggested we should have a day World Series game, but of course, uh, they buddy, never do it. But no, he said, Buddy, Buddy but was all with that until I said, of course, we'll have to uh, pay you a lot less for it. And that was the last time they discussed it. But you know, at at some at some point, you can't keep draining the water out of this ocean that used to be the greatest sporting event on the planet. Certainly on an annual basis.
1: Well,
0: and, you left out one other part. You, the, yeah. the season goes too long now. It's just oh, stupid. Yeah,
2: like yeah but the- the, but Rob Manfred, who by the way was on campus with us at Cornell when Mar and I and Bill Nye were all there, and I wow. was just like, we must have all nearly had a fist bite. <laughs> Manfred was a year behind me. I didn't know this. I had I'd never met him, never heard of him until like ten years ago. But but Rob Manfred was talking upon election about cutting the season back. And it's like, oh, you want to cut back to 154 games. Oh, A, that's not enough. You want to cut it back seriously. Cut it back to 140. But yeah, B, I was going to
0: say like 148 seems yeah, right.
2: But cut it back. But but what does this mean? This means if you if you go if to 154, that's a 5% cut in games, which means a 5% cut in revenues, 5% cut in TV income. You think the owners and the players are going to give 5% back they're going to deflate the business by five percent no what they're going to do is say that's a great idea so let's just charge the, the fans 10 percent more so we can make up for the loss right that's the, there's no way out of this and that's one of the problems here there's no there's no no baseball businessman would look at the economics of the last 10 years and say there's any kind of long-term problem but i am convinced and my study of baseball and sports finances and sports financial history that this can't keep up indefinitely it is to, to refer to something I mentioned before it's the it's the economic boom of the 1920s or the 1990s it can't be indefinite because it requires you know everybody to be able to make a profit and nobody lose any money that can't continue
0: it's the other thing is it changes the actual product because it gets so freaking cold by the time they have the World Series it's like watching a different sport.
2: Yeah. And well, pe- and and the other and the rule changes and the roster changes yeah. they make in September and and everything else are just it's a just it's a different world and there's no um there's no awareness that that they need to make fixes and certainly the the way baseball has grown over the last 150 years as a business in this country it, it, there's 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 never been anything close to a consensus just among the owners as to what to do next let alone Right. Owners and players working
0: together. It is hilarious how they just try to protect the way it was in like the nineteen twenties. You know, we we live in this culture of social media, look at me, selfies, Snapchat, all these things that society has moved toward this direction of people just wanting to show that they're a personality and a free spirit mm-hmm. and an individual at all times. And yet baseball's like, No, no, no can't do that here
2: but it's but it, but it's bill it's much worse than that because this at least there would be some sort of you know if if baseball had been always conducted by Trappist monks
0: <laughs> which you which, know, which may may actually be what happened
2: but but it's not because the what's the last one the last the two big ones here are people are still god bless America people are still talking about Jose Bautista's bat, bat flip I know six like, months later like it's star- no like it started the second world War you know it's like <laughs> Archduke Ferdinand got shot. That was the first World War. That Bautista bat flip started the second World War. But the but the thing with, with this is, not only are they still talking about it, but the last two guys are Goose Gossage, who I love. I, I, w- one of the most sincere, genuine guys I've ever known in baseball. Yeah. Goose Gossage is the author of the greatest, keep your Lee Elias. keep Tom Lasorda. Goose Gossage is the author of the greatest foul-mouthed string of comments. He 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 lost it. He melted down in the Yankee clubhouse in 1982. You can find this on on YouTube. It is fantastic. Mm. And it it's it, it's so not like him and he's the one complaining about Bautista flipping a bat. And then Mike Schmidt comes on and says, "Well, we didn't we never showed emotions like that and tried to show the other when Mike Schmidt hit his 500th home run. He did a kind of cha-cha dance around the bases, yeah. rolling his arms, and it looked like really bad disco. And then when he retired, he burst into tears and didn't do. Um, Bill Mazeroski burst into tears during his Hall of Fame induction, and then said, "I just can't go on," and left the stage in ninety seconds. Greatest Hall of Fame speech of all time because it was only ninety seconds. <laughs> but, but, but Schmidt went on in his retirement press conference, and it was. And I want to thank the Phillies organizers. And this went on for half an hour, and I'm just thinking, Mike, another great guy. Mike, don't don't you have you never watched your 500th home run? Right. And it was a 500. It was a meaningless game. The Phillies weren't competitive. They were in the third or fourth place. They had no. It had no impact on the pennant race. I don't even remember if it had an impact on the game. And this guy's basically is. He's Leslie Nielsening it around the plate, around the diamond, right? As, and and he's complaining about Bautista. Uh, it's this. It's these misty, watercolored memories of the way things weren't in baseball. There's always been this. Babe Ruth was one long, nonstop celebration of Babe Ruth. And you know, did he do it a little bit more subtly? Maybe, probably. The stuff that he celebrated and how he celebrated it, we just didn't see. And they involved stories of him running naked um, through a, a train, carrying the Yankees from New York to St. Louis, chased by another naked figure—a woman carrying a butcher knife. I mean, you know, that, that it's just—it was a different world, and the reporting was different. But there, there's no, there's no, there's no difference, and yet baseball is trying to be stodgy about something. As stupid as a bat flip, so there were bat flips in the 19th century.
0: You're gonna like this next question. Speaking okay. of speaking of franchises that uh, people are holding on to, that have have kind of changed course over the last few years, how would you fix SportsCenter? You and you and Dan had the best SportsCenter ever, and now in 2016, their ratings mm-hmm. go down every year. Yeah. You have the internet. You have ESPN.com cannibalizing SportsCenter with news. Yeah. I can get highlights on my iPad or my computer immediately after yep. a game. Why do I need SportsCenter now?
2: All right. Well, first off, thanks for what you said. I don't know if it's necessarily true because I've gone back and watched tapes of Dan and me together and we had a lot of fun. And for our, for our time, I think we did as good as we could have. But I've looked at a lot of these things. I've heard a lot of these jokes that I haven't heard in 20 years. I mean, my own jokes and my own highlight narration and gone, that's, not very good (laughs) well wait a
0: second though you can't you have to measure it though compared to what it was compared to everything else at the time because yeah history is never going to judge anything kindly
2: no and and i've I've come to terms with the idea that it didn't have to be good it only had to be the best we could come up with by 11 o'clock right but but you know in other eras what 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 berman and john saunders did was spectacular and after i was gone what Stu and rich did was spectacular and you know there there there's a different Thing for every era, but we've discussed this already. Um, the the problem at the heart of it is the years and years ago, our friend John Walsh said, uh, I think this was 1993, said, you know, uh, we've done all sorts of marketing and research, and no matter what happens to ESPN, as long as we have Center and it's a success we will be dominant in this field no matter what competition arises. Our research indicates that the fans will stick with us if we lose the NFL contract, and they'll stay with us if we lose this personality. As long as we have SportsCenter and it's accurate and well done, we will be dominant in this field. And it's not true anymore, because it can't be the centerpiece of the operation for reasons we've already alluded to. But they clearly, I think you would agree with me, they don't know that. And the attempts to... Uh, all the attempts to modify it are predicated on the idea that it can be what it was two years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago when Dan and I did it. And it can't for the simple reason that you just suggested. And I'll go even one further than that. At 11 o'clock, at 12 o'clock, at whatever o'clock there is, if I want, I think I've used this analogy before, if the lead story in sports at 11 o'clock on a given night is... um, the New York Yankees plane has disappeared and we think we see it circling the planet Neptune. We don't know how this has happened. And your anchors are uh, Ring Lardner and Jesus Christ are your co-anchors for SportsCenter. And this, this is the greatest baseball story of all time. And we think we see orbiting Mars or Neptune with the Yankee plane. There's Babe Ruth. Disembodied Babe Ruth is floating around and you're sitting there going, but I want to know what happened with the Browns quarterback situation. You're not going to watch. right? I don't care who's anchoring and I don't care what the story is. We balkanized sports news along with everything else, and it's not a deliberate act. It just happened that way. At that moment, at 11 o'clock or whatever o'clock it is, ESPN alone produces podcasts, online stuff um, specific to... I'm waiting for, you know, having competing 11 o'clock shows somewhere in the ESPN family. One is devoted to the NFC and one is devoted to the AFC. <laughs> That's have, impossible. You, you, right? You get down yeah. to that level of it. So there's no, there is no motivation except for old-timey guys who are either our ages or even older who, who want that sort of leisurely, well-done, paced kind of stroll through all the sports news, but, but we're dying off. Generations have come behind us who say, "Not, nah, I just want to know, you know,
1: who's,
2: who's the leading candidate to be the Browns quarterback next year. And that's it. And I do not care what happened in the world series tonight. And I do not care what happened to, to Steph Curry. And I do not care what happened. Gordy Howe has not only recovered from his problems, but he's going to play for the red wings tonight. I don't care. And as long as, as long as you're trying to create a situation in which you say, well, no, 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 none of that's true, it's just a question of the format, you're going to get stuck uh, investing huge sums of money in gigantic studios or um, specialized formats or just uh, new anchor teams or let's, I, I've got it, we'll put one of the anchors in Los Angeles. No, We'll right. put both of them in Los Angeles. Why? What's the? You could have a, a one studio and just change the backdrop. You know, they could all be from Bristol. Shut everything else down. It's not. I. The, my point is, it's not solvable, and their best bet is to, as I think ultimately they will move it. ESPN News would become the sports centered channel, and it will be 24 hours a day, and it will serve a great purpose, and people will enjoy it, and it'll be the third or fourth uh, level of of interest within the ESPN family. And they'll have to live with that.
0: Now uh, they're the only, not they're not yeah. anywhere close to living with that yet. And well I, think, I
2: mean this I is mean, this is what this is what happened to me. As I think you know, they were um one of the parts of my deal going there was that they wanted me to do and it varied from time to time, they wanted me to do a sports center a month, a sports center a week possibly, and come up go back up to Bristol and do one show on an intermittent basis, possibly as often as once a week. Yeah. And I was all for that simply because you know, what the hell? It was fun the first time. Let's see if it can be fun now. And we never got it done and I'm not really sure why it didn't happen, but I think it had to do with the idea that, that, that the that the the uh, colossus that that Dan and me and Saunders and Berman and Tom Meese and Lee and Jim Bergamo and Linda Cohn and everybody who's there now, all of us built this thing up. There's still a strong sense that this is you know this is the this is the Czar's house, and we are we are we have a set of rules and it will be done this way and and the this Olberman guy is back.
1: Right. And, you
2: know just because just Trotsky came back to the Soviet Union does not mean we give Trotsky a spot on the Politburo. And I was I think they viewed me as like, well, that's a good idea, but he's 45th on the death chart. We don't need to go to him. And it was like, well, okay, uh, I, I'm my value to you is is in a time when you need to sell nostalgia. Maybe you want me out there. Uh, I will do. I will say this. There's one chance I think for the studio multi-purpose sports show. And uh, I sat down with Jamie Horowitz, and I I think I, if I don't go into too much detail, he won't be bothered by this. He's running Fox Sports One and Two, I guess now. Yeah. And uh, he was the one of the executive producers on, on my last show on ESPN, and I got along famously with him. We, we had a great time. Uh, he's my I friend said, as well. Well, then you know. I mean, he's uh, all the travails he's had, they are as exaggerated and as little his fault as they are uh, the stories about you and me. Right. He's, he's a, he is a victim of people who are po- politicians in the way that Napoleon was a politician. So uh, Jamie and I sat down more just to sit there and just talk. Last November, lovely lunch, and we went on for two or three hours. And I said, "This is what you have to do." I said, "If you want," I said, I, "To me, if I were you, I would scrap your nightly all sports sportscast. Just there's no future in it. You can't compete. I don't care who you've got. I don't care if you have Babe Ruth orbiting Neptune. Just scrap it. Or you make a show that is." Everything in one place as fast as possible, which is what I tried to do on ESPN the last time. Only you cover everything except Fox. You cover all the other sports networks, including ESPN, the way I used to cover Fox News when I was on MSNBC or the way Deadspin covered ESPN. Um, Your third story might be about something bad happening in Bristol, Connecticut. I said, and you have to go for the kill. I said, this has to be done in a kind of, um, let's see who we, we stick a scimitar through tonight. It has to be done that way. It can have no sacred cows, and you must approach the leagues and the, and the owners and everybody else with utter cynicism. And if you want to say, we're, we're not going to talk this way about Fox or Rupert Murdoch because he owns this place, I think he can get away with it. But otherwise, it has to be entirely truthful, and it has to be done at lightning speed. And he looked at me and he said, and who do I get to do this? And I said, well, I, that's the problem. Yeah. So that's, to me, the only thing left, and even that would be a dying gasp. I, I just, there's just no future in it. And you can, you know, I, I don't think I believed this till I went out on the air at 11 o'clock in August 2013 with my show, which I thought was a pretty damn good show. And it didn't, it didn't click. And, it, and I, I thought, well, okay, maybe I suck now. And to the degree that age made me suck a little more than I used to, yeah. But it wasn't just that. It was that people are not interested in in, in saying, okay, they, they're no longer giving you the benefit of the doubt that Dan and I got in 1995, which was, all right, they're talking about baseball now. I know in a minute and 40 seconds they're going to switch probably to football. Right? They, nobody's going to wait a minute 40 anymore.
0: Well, so I'm looking at myself in 1995. I'm living in Boston. You guys will come out at 11. And then I would watch that one. But then at 2 o'clock, I think Kilborn was there at that point. Mm-hmm. I'd watch Kilbourne because I'd get West Coast NBA. Right. And I'd get other in West Coast baseball. I'd be like, oh, I'm going to run this back. And now 1995 me would just be on the internet looking at the box scores already. Like, you would watch SportsCenter 20 years ago, and I wouldn't know who won. It was almost like there was a suspense to it. Oh, oh the Warriors came back. Oh, here come the Kings! I don't know what's going to happen, and now I know what's going to happen. So, you know, it's weird because you said that you think they know, they know it's in trouble. I would argue the opposite. I mean, I don't think you build a 120 million dollar set if you think that it's fine.
2: No, I may have misspoken, Bill. Yeah. I don't. I don't think they. I, I don't think. I they think under- they really they, thought
0: the set was going to make it yeah. like this high tech, new wave, state of the art sports center. It's. Uh, is just it's not like going like to work. Every-
2: it's like every other pyramid every other Pharaoh ever built it's for it's so people remember him by something and it's and it's just as empty with as many secret caves that have nothing in them but you know this is how how, how different the world is and it ties in social media which we talked about more in a political sense but we it, it in terms of sports in 1996 five whenever it was Mario Lemieux, and I've told this story before, uh, he was battling Hodgkin's disease and a bad back, and he'd gotten through the season with the Pittsburgh Penguins, and he was uh, uh, worn out. And a friend of mine called me breathless, literally called and said, Hey, I've got a story for you. And he was he was at the gym, and he happened to be on the treadmill next to Tom Rich, the son of Tom Rich, the agent, who was Mario Lemieux's agent, and they just started talking, and Tom Rich's son, so many years later, I don't care, blowing the source here, Tom Rich's son said, hey, are you a hockey fan? And my friend was, and he said, uh, uh, Mario Lemieux's going to retire for at least a season, because he had all these troubles last year, and he needs to recover. And the guy gets off the phone and calls me with this scoop. And it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday. And I'll spare you all the details of all the phone calls to try to confirm it, and all the meetings from the ESPN people who were on a retreat somewhere, and all the people we had to get it cleared by and through. That story held in the Sports Center studios and newsroom for eight hours. We didn't put it on until 11 o'clock that night, and until we got a second source, which was Rick Tockett, who had just been traded to the Penguins and confirmed. That he was told the reason he was going there was they needed somebody to replace Lemieux. We didn't go with the story because we didn't have a second source, and we sat on it for eight hours. And right now, I don't know what there is. What story could last eight hours? Eight and minutes. Eight minutes. And who would be? Who would say? I'm. You know, I never know what what, what the lead story is going. On. I'm going to be surprised by something at eleven o'clock on Sports Center. Yeah, it's. It. Nobody's surprised anymore. I. I I'm trying to think maybe twice, three times in the last five years, something in sports news has surprised me, you know, and and other than you know, fatalities and deaths and all the rest of that, which are always bad surprises. I, they're just, it's just not there anymore. And your solution to it either, either has to be that the production and the presentation cannot be missed. It has to be a supersized personality. And there's so few of them, um, or you have to say, you have to lower your expectations if you're ESPN or Fox or whoever else is doing a studio show and say, We need to spend all of our money on live games and we'll have the interns do the pre and the post. Period.
0: Well, and especially if you're gonna you if you're gonna have a company that's built around the producers and the executives and the personalities are considered disposable.
2: What organization would that be, Bill?
0: Well, <laughs> I mean, really, the way to the way to save SportsCenter would be to actually build around personalities, but then you have to deal with the repercussions of having personalities and the yeah. ups and downs of them, and the fact that they're going to have opinions and they're going to, you know. So I, I think it's a catch twenty two. But
2: what? Yeah, but we what, should, what, uh, what makes the most money? I. I isn't games. this the way that business people are supposed to think about it? Which makes the most money?
0: Wow. Well. I, I think that's why we're doing this podcast right now instead of working for them. Uh, we'll, let's leave some meat on that bone, though, for the next time. I'm glad right. we. Uh, I'm glad we finally. We finally did this. It's good to hear your
2: voice. And uh, I'll say the same. Uh, we should have done this a long time ago. Yeah. And and when are you going? When are you going to start recording so we can play it for other people too? Oh, that's right. That's the oldest joke in the book.
0: <laughs> uh, this will. So this will go up probably. We're taping this on a Wednesday morning. This will go up Wednesday night. Hopefully, nothing will happen in the next 12 hours, which is ironic after your your yeah, thing right. about nothing can stay uh, secret in eight hours. But yeah, this will go up Wednesday night. It was a pleasure. I'd love to have you uh, back as as this baseball season <laughs> approaches and the political election heats up. Uh, good be, yeah. good luck with everything. I hope you uh, I hope you find a place to to talk every day.
2: We're working on it, and uh, at minimum, I'll get the—I'll do a show with the dogs because they make <laughs> it talk enough. That's for damn sure. All right, thanks,
0: Keith Oldman. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. That's it for the BS podcast. We might have another one on Friday. I have not decided yet. You can talk me into it. Send me—send me some—some send some tweets and some Facebook posts. Spread the word. Help us get. The Ringer Twitter account to 200,000. If we're if we're at 200,000 by Thursday night, I'll do a podcast on Friday. If not, you guys don't care, and you guys can just listen to other podcasts. All right. Thanks to Mailchimp, they make it easy to connect with your customers and sell more stuff. Free to get started, no expiring trial, no credit card required. They helped us collect over 175,000 subscribers for the Ringer's new newsletter and counting. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Subscribe to our newsletter that we're making with their help at TheRinger.com. Thanks to the new PBS two-part movie, Jackie Robinson, directed by Ken Burns. It chronicles the life and times of Jackie Robinson, his breaking of baseball's color barrier, and lifelong fight for equality on and off the field. Also features extensive interviews with Robinson's widow, Rachel, as well as her personal archive of photographs. The two-night event premieres Monday, April 11th, 9 p.m., on PBS. Thanks to HBO Now. You don't need cable or satellite to watch HBO. Download the HBO Now app. Start a free one month trial. Thanks to SeatGeek, the presenting sponsor of the BS Podcast and Channel 33. Uh, and check out the ringer.com and also check out Bill BillSimmonsPodcast.com to catch up on all the Channel 33, the Shack House Pod, all that stuff. All those links are right there. we about this bitch. Talk to you later. Anytime y'all want to see me again, rewind this track right here. Close your eyes and picture me rolling.